0: This season of Desert Island Dishes is sponsored by Cook's Matches. Cook's Matches have been the mainstay of British kitchens for over 40 years and remain the match for both cooks and chefs to use in the kitchen. You will have seen those iconic yellow boxes in just about anybody who's anybody's kitchen. This autumn, they're running an amazing giveaway to help you fall in love with cooking. In order to be in with a chance to win an incredible cookware bundle consisting of a set of kitchen knives, apron, oven gloves and a signed Tom Carriage hand and flowers cookbook, they want to hear about your favourite cosy autumn dish. It's very simple to enter. All you have to do is follow Cook's Matches on Instagram, like the post on their page which tells you about the giveaway and then simply leave a comment with your favourite autumn meal. I mean, to be honest, that's going to be the hardest bit—narrowing down your favourite dish to just one. But you can do it. The competition runs until the twenty-eighth of October, so get entering. To find out more, head to the website www.cooksmatches.co.uk. Good luck to everyone, and thank you very much to Cooks Matches. Hi, I'm Margie Namora, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven desert island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. I hope you're all well and that you're having a lovely week. I don't know about you, but this week has just flown by and it feels like I was only just talking to you. you. <laughs> You lot are always so lovely with the messages and reviews that you send me. Honestly, it it means so much. And recently, I've had a few messages about businesses that have started up as a result of being inspired by the stories and interviews on this podcast, which is just amazing. How cool is that? (laughs) One that I wanted to tell you about is a very delicious looking company that sells jars of beans. I don't know why but jarred beans are just so much more delicious for some reason they are called the bold bean company and the founder was apparently inspired to start the company after hearing laura jackson's episode of desert island dishes where we were singing the praises of the humble bean and then secondly there's a listener in spain who was inspired to start her own cafe in madrid after listening to tales of other people pursuing their dreams. So if anyone is in Madrid, we must all go and say hello to Sophie at Four Cafe. Thank you so much for sharing these amazing stories, which have genuinely made my day. Now on to today's episode with one of the best chefs in the world, which we recorded at his new restaurant a few weeks ago. Hope you enjoy. My guest today is Tom Aitkins. Tom has been hailed as one of the best chefs of his generation, being the youngest British chef to hold two Michelin stars, which he achieved by the tender age of just 26. His remarkable career has taken him to David Cavaliers in Battersea, Pierre Kaufman's La Tante Claire, Pierre Terre and Joel Rubichon in Paris, to name a few. Raised in Norfolk with a respect for fresh seasonal ingredients, Tom is passionate about using the finest local sustainable produce. He has restaurants all over the world, and at the start of 2020, we saw Tom return to the world of fine dining by opening the intimate, very personal, 25-cover restaurant Muse, which has already won a Michelin star. When not cooking, you will find Tom running marathons, cycling, or possibly running with Olympic torches. He also works with several charities, most recent of which is Only a Pavement Away, for which he has just brought out a new cookbook. Of his cooking, Tom has said... My whole thing with cooking is trying to create memories. I think customers are looking for more of an experience, more than just going to a place and having a nice time. They know they're going to have a great place of food. They know they're going to have nice service and formal, nice atmospheric conditions. But will they make a memory? Welcome, Tom.
1: Thank you. (laughs) Lovely to be here. Thank you.
0: My first question for you is how do you think you'd get on on the desert island?
1: Well, I can I I'm a survivor and I'm just one of those people that will sort of battle through no matter what the hardship is because I think, you know, that's kind of been in me as a person from from the moment I was born. I was uh, a twin and my twin brother, who I'm very very close with, he actually ate all the food and oh. <laughs> I was a skinny little runt. Um
0: what before and, you were born?
1: Yeah. So I was when I was born, I was only Oh my Lord, I was literally like a bag of sugar. <gasps> wow. Yeah, tiny. So I was in an incubator for, I think, almost two months. And I had a 50-50 chance of living, so the doc said. So, I, yeah, so from that moment, my mother has said that I've always been a fighter. And I've always, you know, if I want something, I will go and do it. And in terms of anything from career or sport or anything, if I put my mind to it, I
0: will damn well do it. Okay, I, I believe you're going to be okay on the desert island, Tom. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm right with my facts on this one. I think I read that you said the strangest thing you've ever eaten is a pig's testicle, so I feel like that might set you up quite well for life yeah. on the desert island. I don't know if
1: there's any pigs, though. <laughs> no, maybe lots of fish in it.
0: <laughs> That's true. Where where was that? Where did you eat that?
1: Well, that was no, that was in um, in my uh, restaurant Pire Terre, when I was there. I had one customer who, for whatever reason, liked pig's testicles. <laughs> So they're a little bit like sweet sweetbreads feel sweetbreads. Okay. So they're kind of you know quite rich but they do have you know i have to say they do have quite a nice taste. Yeah
0: best just not to think about no, what they are. No. But with that in your back pocket do you think you'd ever be tempted to take on something like I'm a celebrity? I feel like that might be easy. No
1: definitely not. <laughs>
0: Strictly? There's too
1: much cheese on that for me. No definitely not. <laughs> no.
0: You've completed the Marathon de Sable in 2010. Which is where you run six marathons across the Sahara in five days and yes. did it to raise money for charity. What was that like?
1: First and foremost, not many people will believe it, but it was actually quite good fun.
0: <laughs> really, Dom? Yeah, no, it was because... <laughs>
1: for the first time in a long time you had complete solitude so you, you know you in a way it was a little bit sort of selfish because you were cut off from the outside well you didn't really have to think about the outside well you were just in your own little sort of bubble didn't have a mobile phone you weren't really talking to people so you just had to concentrate on your day-to-day living and your running and and then kind of resting so in a way it was very nice because you just had the time when you're running to think through through your head, not that there was much else to do, and then uh, survive the terrain because the terrain was pretty, you know, it was pretty awful. The heat you could deal with, although it was between 45 and 50 degree heat.
0: Oh my goodness!
1: Um, but it was yeah the terrain that kind of ruined my feet. Uh, they were literally in yeah in pieces. I'd lost all my toenails and sort of the the heel. Well, the skin of my heel nearly all came off as well. So it was pretty, it's pretty gross stuff. Yeah, that is and gross. Gold, septic, septic <laughs> and nasty. So I was, I was literally by the last day, it got to a point where I had to take the uh, inner soles out of my trainer because my feet were both bandaged. And then when I set off running for me to get my feet into my shoes, I had to squash them in and then jump on them. So they would go numb.
0: Oh my! Oh my goodness! That's so.
1: Then the pain.
0: Oh my goodness! And yet you still described it as quite a good time. Then
1: you could start (laughs) running because they were numb. But then the issue was when you stopped and then the blood started pumping again. I have never felt so much pain in my life. And how
0: many people do this?
1: A thousand. Really? Thousand thousand people. A thousand people, and then generally there's a dropout of around, you know, forty to thirty percent.
0: Okay, yeah, that's not surprising. Mm. But you made it to the end. I made
1: it. Yeah. That's (laughs) That's very. I came about three hundred and thirtieth.
0: Wow. Well, yeah. See, I feel like after that, hanging out on a desert island is going to be a breeze. So, from everything I've read about your childhood, it sounds pretty idyllic. You and your twin brother grew up in a little village in Norfolk, in a house with fruit and vegetables growing in the garden and a family who treated Sunday lunch with the reverence it deserves. Your mother sounds like a wonderful cook, so let's dive straight into the first Desert Island dish, and that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood.
1: There's quite a few, actually, but I would say uh, that my mother always liked a good roast leg of lamb with mint sauce and good old roast potatoes. Very simple, but utterly delicious. And then, yeah, it would generally be sort of you know, cauliflower cheese or green beans and something from the garden, maybe some carrots. And then all finished off with a, a nice either apple pie or apple crumble.
0: Oh, amazing. And was is that true what I said, that Sunday lunch was a big deal in your house?
1: Yeah, no, it was a time when, uh, you know, we all sat down at the table, all had to make some kind of conversation, <laughs> which, you know, as a child, you probably weren't all that much interested in doing. But no, it was, you know, lovely times. And I think it's, you know, it's a special moment to, to do that. And I, you know, I definitely do that with my kids now and try and sort of have time, you know, for that to cook to cook and, you know, to take time out from my own sort of busy, hectic world.
0: And the combination of your mother being an amazing cook and growing all of this brilliant produce and your father and grandfather being in the wine business, I guess it was sort of like the perfect melting pot to bring you to where you are today.
1: Yes, exactly. So I was fortunate to, as you said, to have a a very good mother who, you know, was an amazing cook and um, she kind of really took us under her wings in terms of developing us into I guess, a little bit of, you know, chef chefiedom, And, you know, we started cooking when we were probably around six or seven and going into the garden and her teaching us, you know, that things grew in winter, autumn, spring and, and summer, different vegetables and fruits and things. And then, you know, school holidays, we, um, you know, we traveled quite a lot around France because of my father's work as well in France and other parts of, of the world. But mainly at the beginning, it was, you know, all over... France and um we sort of every school holiday would would go to the Auvergne or places further down south and eventually my father bought a house yeah we bought a house in France we had for about 10 years so we would then go there all the time sort of school holidays and Christmas and things so we were really sort of getting a lot of you know sort of time in France and enjoying enjoying the life of it
0: God it sounds amazing and definitely you can see how the beginnings how it all led to where you are now. But I think I, from what I've read, your dad actually wasn't over the moon about you both deciding that you wanted to be chefs and his dream was maybe for you to take over his wine business.
1: Yeah, it could have been. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that me and my brother were particularly all that academically sort of interested at all. And because main sole reason was that when I was, I think I was still at um, high school and... Knowing already that I wanted to be a chef at 12, I rang up the local college in Norwich, uh, which is a very good catering college, and I asked them, you know, what qualifications do you need? What do you have to do? And everything like this. And they just said, well, just come for an interview. And basically, if we like you, we'll take you. No pressure. (laughs) No. Yeah, but no qualifications needed at all. So I was like, what's a no exam results? Oh, just very basic, you know, C's or D's and that's it because not many people were going into catering then i told my brother this and we were like pretty ecstatic because that meant that we didn't need any exams, so we didn't really need to bother going to school that much (laughs) and uh we kind of bunked off and we you know didn't really concentrate on on school at all and completely you know messed up all our exams so yeah so the father on the day of reckoning as i say that we got our final results and um you know he kind of had this i guess sort of half-hearted sort of pleasant looking smiley face before he opened the envelope (laughs) i think there was sort of a shadow of nervousness in there but that soon sort of face went from sort of nervous sort of happiness to anger as he sort of read the results to us and sort of swore us a bit and said you know what basically f-u-c-k you're going to be doing with your career and you know kind of screwed it up and there's no hope for you now and all this sort of you know doom and gloom and disaster and i sort of piped up and said, oh, don't worry, we've got it all sorted. And he goes, "I what the hell do you mean you've got it all sorted? I said, well, we're going to become chefs. And there was, this, there was this sort of silence in the kitchen. And then he goes, what do you mean chefs? I said, yes, we're going to become chefs. I said, well, have a think about it. You're in the wine business mummy or mother is a you know is a very good home cook and has taught us all about cooking and seasonality and i said isn't that quite obvious we spend summers in france and again there was this pause where you could see he was sort of clicking over in his brain sort of summing all this up and (laughs) and then he kind of looked and said maybe not such a bad idea
0: oh (laughs) okay you got a good result in the end and now that you're a father to two young girls how would you feel if they wanted to go into the industry
1: well, I would be happy because they're both female chefs, and there's not enough female chefs in the industry. So I'd, I would be very, very happy. I think that um, there's one slight issue because they are quite fussy. Okay, I have fussy kids.
0: <laughs> fussy eaters.
1: Yes, fussy eaters. I can't believe that I'm a chef and I have fussy eaters. So yeah, they're their favourite. You know, top top five or top three is obviously pesto pasta, obviously, which every kid is, and pizza. And I think you know probably fish and chips.
0: Okay, I think that's actually going to give quite a lot of hope to quite a lot of parents listening, Tom. That yeah, probably even will. your so, children. So hang on, and they, they
1: now they have now sort of moved on to actually. I mean, I've got my eldest who's nine onto having black pepper.
0: Okay, that's a big step.
1: Yeah, which was, and now the little one is kind of wanting black pepper too. So that's you know one foot in the right direction. Baby steps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Take it slowly.
0: It sounds like baking was your mother's forte, and you started baking in the kitchen by the age of eight and making family meals by the age of 12. And at that point, as you say, you'd already set your sights on becoming a chef. So let's talk about the second Desert Island dish, and that is the first dish that you learned to cook.
1: Well, the first dish, I wouldn't say it was a particular dish, it was was, uh, a cake. And um, my mother loved making cakes, and then I remember that we would always, any excuse, make a cake, because we knew how to make it because it's so simple you weigh your eggs butter sugar flour the salt and away you go um so yeah we were always we were always um cake making victoria sandwich cakes and come sort of any birthday anniversary any celebration or no reason to celebrate but just to make a cake on the weekend that's what we did
0: yeah the weekend is a good reason to make a cake i think Knowing what you want to do in life from a really young age is great, and I'm always so envious of people with that sort of sense of purpose. but what was it exactly about chefing that drew you in other than not needing qualifications to go to the college? Um, I would say
1: that when we were traveling in France, there was this one moment that we stopped at a hotel, and this was then sort of eighty two so it was sort of the height of nouvelle cuisine and tiny portions and and everything like this and um my father generally sort of didn't really sort of look at guidebooks or anything he was always you know given places to stay by word of mouth and um and one of the places the that, that he he booked us into was given to him by a you know by a by a close friend and he said oh you must try this place it's exceptional the food's really good da, da, da. and um we were coming back from uh, a skiing trip so we'd already been in the car for like i think like eight hours or something so um the car was a complete mess anyway we came into the driveway this Hotel and we were greeted by a, uh, by a young gentleman sort of, you know, in a, in a white jacket, white gloves and, uh, and a white bow tie and all this. So we were like, well, this is a bit bizarre. This is not like our father to be booking us into a sort of quite a swish place. He's normally sort of, you know, a sort of humdrum, sort of kind of shifty looking place generally. Anyway, so the gentleman sort of greeted us and, and asked to take our bags and what have you. But anyway, he, he I think he booked us into quite a nice sort of hotel and anyway that evening when we you know we sort of settled in and everything my mother and father sort of as we say eating sort of garden creatures and insects and things so frogs and snails and god knows what else and um i mean my brother just had a very simple dinner of um of this lovely fresh tomato salad with you know it was just beautiful tomatoes and olive oil and nice salt and chives and basil and things and then a uh a little baby sort of veal fillet with um hand cut chips and very very delicious and then peaches with homemade vanilla ice cream so we were in heaven and it was just you know looking at our parents sort of plates coming and going all the sort of time we were eating i think they had you know three times the amount of food that we did but it just looked also amazing and and pretty and delicious and although we weren't sort of particularly interested in you know food hugely we we could see the sort of the excitement and, and enjoyment of eating good food
0: Yeah, like the theatre of
1: it.
0: Yeah. Isn't that amazing? That sort of one meal can change your life. Yeah, completely. Also, your poor father, because it was kind of inadvertently him that set you on that path, even though that might not have been what he wanted. So both you and your brother ended up going to catering college at the age of 16. And from everything I've read at that point, you sort of already had your future mapped out. You knew who you wanted to work for, where you wanted to work. And you decided that by the time you were 26, you'd have your own restaurant was being the youngest British chef to achieve two Michelin stars on that list.
1: No, but, uh, but I knew I just, you know, it was just so apparent and clear to me that I, you know, that I had to be a success and I knew that I was going to be a success because I just have always been taught from the get go, you know, about working hard, no matter what, in terms of, okay, I had really bad exam results. If you have a hard work ethic then you can achieve anything it's just basic principle living in, you know in life and i've always sort of been taught that by my you know father grandfather mother you know that you do whatever you do and choose to do to work hard at it and, and and be the best in anything that you you know that you set out to do that be it you know delivering newspapers or you know i mean my brother used to go and pick lettuces in the in the summer or anything like this just to do it as best as you can but the fact was that you know when we were at college and when we were interviewed and everything after we had been at the college i think for about three months or something the teacher that interviewed me he came over and had a chat with me and and at that stage you know he had heard that we were doing pretty well and we were in the sort of top tier of the class anyway he came up to me and he said um I just want you to know that you know that I'm that I'm watching you and seeing how you're getting on and everything. And I said, well, why, why? What do you mean? And his response was, well, you're very lucky to be here because if it wasn't for your twin brother, you wouldn't be here. And I, and I yes. was like, well, what do you mean? He says, well, your interview was was poor, and uh, your because we also had to do like a multiple choice sort of you know exam thing. And he said that was, you know, was pretty poor. So he said, the fact that you're here is just down, down to your twin brother. So I then, as a very cheeky, spunky 16-year-old, turned around to him and said, well, that may be the case. But I said, in 10 years' time, you're going to know who I am and I'm going to be famous.
0: <gasps> what did and he, he say to of, that?
1: he kind of, you know, laughed it off and said, yeah, go away, boy, little boy. So in that, you know, he kind of also spurned me on. And he was basically saying that I was going to become, you know, be a nobody. But I had already, you know, sort of seen kind of who were the famous chefs in London and who were doing really well, and and so that was really my own, I guess, spur as well of of, of further sort of proving that you know that I can make it. And so um, when I left uh, college at eighteen, with the help of my father, we sort of wrote off to sort of lots of different restaurants and hotels and, and chefs and things. Yeah, so after that chat with the, you know, with the teacher, it definitely spurred me on a lot more to do better and you know in my career.
0: And is it true that that tutor wrote to you after you got your second Michelin star?
1: Yes, he did, yeah. What did he say? He just <laughs> said a big congratulations and, and well done.
0: Isn't it interesting in life, I mean, I'm not saying this is a good thing, but it's interesting how you have cheerleaders along the way and they're very important, but then you do also have people like this tutor who sort of spur you on, Probably not in the best possible way, but they're sort of equally as motivating, which I don't know what we should learn from that. Yeah,
1: I guess. But uh, I think everyone makes their own luck at the end of the day as well. I think, you know, it's yes, it's always about being in the right place at the right time. But also, you you know, you have to make your own, you know, your own luck as well.
0: Yeah. Something you said earlier about the fact that you were a twin and that you spent a lot of time in an incubator and your your mother sort of told you from a really young age that you were a fighter. Do you think sort of growing up being told that kind of, I don't know, it's sort of a gift in a way because it it instills in you something that probably is true. But even if it isn't, that's what you're told you are and therefore that's what you become. Do you think there's anything in that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think so. I definitely think that um, given the facts of of me as a baby and and not having that, I guess, sort of potential chance to, you know, to live on it makes you, you know, it makes you tougher um so i think there's there's a lot in i guess from where you come from and and i think in terms of i was lucky to have you know a very good relationship with my twin brother as well so having someone else as well that is doing exactly the same as you and following in the same career is also a massive help as well
0: yeah it's amazing that you've both you've both been so successful let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish and that is the best dish you've ever eaten
1: Best dishes I've ever eaten is, God, oh, it's very, very tough because I've, I've been very lucky enough to eat in so many places all over the world. But I think one of the sort of defining, I guess, memories for for, for me was when I left, uh, Pierre Kaufman at the tonclair and this was then 93. And, um, when I went there, it was only a two star. And then, you know, When I was there, it became a three star. So, which was amazing in itself, um, to be part of that and seeing a restaurant develop. But it was when, um, when I left there and I would then sort of, you know, every month or so, I'd go and say hello to, to chef, to Pierre and just have a, you know, coffee and a chit chat and a catch up and whatever. And then on one occasion he, you know, he would, when I was working there, when suppliers came, you know, he would always say, Oh, do you want something to eat or whatever? And to his suppliers and, you know, we cooked them something off the, off the lunch menu or something like that. And anyway. I can't
0: imagine any of them ever said no. <laughs>
1: exactly. And then when I came in one day, you know, sort of close to lunchtime, he said exactly the same thing. Oh, you want a coffee? You want something to eat? And I said, yeah, yeah, that'd be nice. to have a coffee. Uh, you know, whatever do you want to give me. A, so generally you'd then just, you know, stand in the kitchen and eat it in the kitchen and chit chat, chit chat. So I found, found myself sort of, you know, to be quite privileged in that because then kind of all the other chefs were there like, Oh, yes, the sure. <laughs> <Like, sort of. laughs> And anyway, then he turned around and he said, No, 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 you go in, the, you go in the restaurant and eat. <gasps> and I was like, Really? Because I was like ripped jeans, t-shirt, and they had a very strict dress code. Then it was like, you know, shirt, tie, jacket very formal and all restaurants were then you know you had to dress up you had to be smart and so i when i when i went in i i was getting like okay, this, this like, you know coming into the restaurant little week of a uh, retrobate yeah <laughs> anyway so when i went in then you know i just had an amazing you know amazing time and you know he gave me all these classic dishes of you know the roast foie I was so turn and and uh, and, uh pickled shallots, and then uh, scallops with the black ink, and the pig trotter and the pistachio souffle, and da, da, da. so that, that was like my my best meal.
0: Oh, that sounds mm. amazing. What an yeah. excellent choice. So let's talk about your first job, because I'm really interested in how you made this dream of yours happen. I know you've said people make their own luck, but lots of people sort of proudly declare that in 10 years' time, the world is going to know their name, but you actually achieved it, which... Is amazing. So after college, you went to London, and I believe that getting that first job was actually not that straightforward. No, it, it wasn't at
1: all because, um, again, sort of back in you know, sort of early, uh, sorry, late 80s, I keep going about early nine, but even late 80s, I keep forgetting, and you know, I'm 50 odd now. <laughs> um, that there was, you know, there were very few restaurants, very few that were actually any good, hotels, very few as well, and um. And of the ones that there were, you know, they were quite old school, sort of, you know, hotel style. And there were, you know, the likes of the Michel and the Rue brothers, Michel and Albert Rue. You had Pierre Kaufman, you had Marco Pierre White, and you had uh, Nicola Dennis and Pierre Kaufman, and that was it. So, so I wrote off to all those in a number of hotels, and my father sort of helped me sort of write the letter, and we basically put, you know, a high sort of emphasis on how hard that i would work and i'm super excited and super keen and this and this and this and you know all of that but you know i've only got two years as a chef and not even a proper chef i am just come straight out of college
0: but everyone's got to start somewhere
1: i know i know but the general rule of thumb was you know was basically like okay thanks for letter but you know we don't have a place because we have you know two-year waiting list for chefs or come back when you have more experience i'm like well, how the f- yeah, more experience if you don't employ me now, yeah. it's just like <laughs> yeah. vicious, a vicious usual circle. So I then said, uh, I then had this sort of brainwave and said to my father, well, okay, we've got no results here, everyone has said no, what about if we write again and I'll say that I'll work for free, for nothing, obviously, for six months and then see if anyone, you know, wants to give me a go, give me a job. So I said that, in the letter, I said, oh, look, I'll work for free, for six, I thought then six months they'll kind of know me inside out and... At least they'll be able to tell if I'm, you know, if I'm good enough or not. So I wrote off again and then basically I got like three, four letters back. That was it out of, I think, 15. And, um, one was from the Rear Brothers. I should have kept it, but I never did. Uh, oh, that could be
0: framed and the yeah, oh, lose. Yeah, I know, exactly.
1: <laughs> and they just, you know, they were very nice, very gracious and said, look, you know, we're really sorry, but we can't give you a job because there's a waiting list and it would be a bit unfair for you to jump the queue and da 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 da. But wish you good luck in your career and everything else. And then the uh, the one that did say yes was David Cavalier on the uh, Queenstown Road, which is obviously long gone. And he said, "Yep, you know, come and see me, and uh, and we can give you some work for six months, and only if you know you're up to it. Then we can look at giving you a job." So I was like, "Yay, hooray!" So yeah, so I went along, didn't get paid, and worked for six months, and I was allowed at least to have sort of less hours than everyone else because I wasn't getting paid and you know, but that completely changed when I was, you know, getting paid. Well what pay it was. I mean it was, you know, it was a pittance and it was a joke. So I think it was like five thousand, six thousand pounds a year. It was just
0: Oh my goodness. It
1: was it was a joke. That is a joke. Anyway, so I then yeah, started work there and and obviously the hours increased and increased and increased. So I was doing like, you know, ninety hours a week. But I, you know, but I stuck to it. And, um, and then I then stayed for a whole year. So I stayed another six months. Cause the thing is, you know, you at a young age, you just want to do a year, move on, move on. You then you move up a, you know, a level as well. So I then asked David, I said, look, I really want to go and work with, um, Pierre Kaufman. And, um, you know, how about helping me? Hint, hint. <laughs> so off I went to, uh, have an interview with Pierre Kaufman. And I was totally, as I can say, bricking it. And, um, you know, I was like, my palms were sweaty. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm going to be big. I'm going to be careful. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, so I had me interview and it literally lasted like two minutes. and uh um, Which
0: could either be really good or really bad.
1: Yeah, he just said, uh, you know, he introduced himself and I, you know, I spoke. And he said, well, you know, this is the kitchen. This is where you can work. And this is, you know, if you like the kitchen, you know, what do you think? Okay, you have a job. That's it. Right.
0: Amazing.
1: It was the quickest interview I've ever had. It was literally like five minutes. <laughs> yeah, so I then started with, uh, with Pierre Kaufman.
0: And I'm so interested because obviously you had this ambition and dream to become a chef, but you hadn't really had that much experience working in a kitchen before. No, so how, how was it?
1: Oh my God, it was hard. Yeah. Basically, um, I was on the larder with a French guy, Laurent, who we, and the French hated, I mean, hated the English because they just thought they couldn't cook and the whole kitchen was full of French people. And Kaufman kind of liked this because he kind of liked the banter between the. It was me and another British chef and you kind of could see the animosity towards the British chef. So he would kind of like support us and tell the other side just to grow up and just, you know, get a life basically. But it was, it was funny. And the guy that I was working with on Lada for the first three months, I mean, we didn't speak. We didn't speak. Like, we just knew which jobs we had to do each, and we didn't speak. Like even in all service, those
0: hours of the day, even in
1: service, we wouldn't talk. So he would do his dishes, I'd do my dishes, and then that was it. Like it was just hilarious. And then he then promoted me to the fish section. I basically got promoted to each section when it was the worst time of year to be on that section. Oh,
0: great!
1: in <laughs> the fish it was in the summer, and then in the, in the then I was on the meat in the winter when it was game season. So I was, oh my god, it was just, you know, it was horrendous. But it was good because I learned a lot. And and when he put me on the on the fish section, I basically said to, I had to, I had to have a conversation with him and say, look, I pulled him aside, I said, I haven't filleted any fish since I was at college. And as you can imagine, filleting fish at college and this beautiful wild salmon is 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 quite different. And he was like, well, you fucking learn, you know. I mean, with they sit You know, so it's just like. Uh, Okay. So basically, yeah, he taught me how to fillet fish.
0: So basically you're thrown in the deep end. Yeah,
1: completely. Scallops, longestine, baby red mullet, squid. Haven't touched half of this stuff.
0: So scary as well, because you know how much it all costs. And I think I read that if you weren't a chef, you said you'd be an endurance sports athlete, which I thought was interesting. Or a jockey. Okay. (laughs) But that kind of, you know, the endurance that you need to be that kind of chef Mm. sort of ties in quite well.
1: Yeah, definitely does. Yeah, you need you need to have a good a attitude, thick-skinned, beyond back then anyway.
0: A very smooth transition now to the fourth desert island dish, Tom Aitkins, What is your favourite sandwich?
1: Favourite sandwich? I have to say, when I was at school, I'd always look forward to um, to sort of school trips because it would mean that we'd get a little homemade picnic box. Oh
0: yeah, <laughs> the best.
1: And, um, you know, you would have occasionally, you know, sort of mother's either slice of cake or flapjack and, you know, obviously obligatory apple or banana and, and maybe a Jaffa cake or something. But then you would have in the cling film, you'd have the sweaty sandwich, which I loved. Cheese and tomato had been wrapped up in cling film lovingly by my mother and had been in that plastic box sweating away for probably 4-5 hours
0: oh you did well to last that long I was always yeah. kicking in sort of as soon yeah, as the no, coach I, turned I, I the kind corner. of like
1: them you know when they're kind of sweaty in that cling film and yeah. so that was yeah, cheese and tomato
0: and does that bring back memories now
1: yeah no, it does yeah, yeah. it does yeah it's funny <laughs>
0: So as with anyone's career, you've had the most enormous highs, but there have also been lows. And I wondered at any point, did you consider packing it in and doing something different, retraining as a jockey perhaps?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, I think with careers, you know, you're going to have ups, you're going to have downs, you're going to have where you're coasting along and (laughs) otherwise life would be boring. And I, you know, I've definitely had lots of, you know, lows and kicking the teeth and and the stomach and everything else. But, you know, At the end of the day, when you, you know, look at yourself in the mirror and you kind of debate in your head, like, what the F is going on in your life, you have choices to make. You kind of, you know, can crumple and fall and crawl in a hole. Or you just look yourself in the eye and say, yeah, you can beat this and you can just get on with it and hold your head up high when everyone is calling you whatever names and thinking that you're the piece of you know, poop on your shoe. <laughs> um, you just go get on with it. And that's just what I've done. You know, I know I've probably, you know, made some enemies along the way and, and stuff, but at the end of the day, as long as you have a, a clear picture in your head of, of achievement and, and what you want to do. And eventually, you know, everything becomes a little bit clearer and, and better. And I have always, you know, in, even in my relationship with my, my third wife now, is I am always the positive one no matter what. And She's, you know, she is positive, but she's always, always questions things and always, you know, sort of second counts things. And, you know, so I, I'm always one, no matter what we'll see positive in anything.
0: That's an amazing skill to have. And I mean, yeah, I'm sure it's not something that you think about day to day, but you are sort of often heralded as one of the best chefs in the world. So well, I don't clearly. know about that, but there's many, <laughs> there's
1: many better than me. But I mean, it's, you know, it's a nice tag to have. But I think, you know, I'm quite humble, you know, I'm not one that's going to be shacking from the rooftops, have done this, done that. You know, most, I'd say most chefs these days, you know, they are pretty humble. And I think that's because of the hard work it takes to get where you, you know, where you have to. It's not an easy career. And I think for those that do make it, we basically know how lucky we are to be here. And um, at any given time, that can be all taken away as well.
0: And now you've got Muse, which is your critically acclaimed return to fine dining. It feels like a very personal restaurant. I referred to the quote in the introduction that where you said about Muse, where you talk about how the cooking is all about trying to create memories. It's the the menu at Muse that has garnered quite a lot of attention because it's not written in a sort of traditional menu uh, format. Will you tell us a little bit about that and the decision behind it?
1: I guess when I was thinking of obviously the name and menu and all of this and I kind of knew in myself that this is, you know, this is my last resting place. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not gonna be doing another restaurant, I'm not gonna be doing another fine dining, this is it, you know. So in all of the experiences that I have and all the stories and all of the, I guess, mishaps and good points and everything else, you know, I kind of wanted to, in a way, talk about them a little bit and I think share with people stories, personal ones, but also fun ones as well. And and I was also just thinking about how, you know, how do you keep getting repeat business? It's kind of a code, really, that you just have to crack. And I think for most people that go out to eat... If you ask them sort of, you know, a week later, where did they go? What did they have? What was special? Name the cocktail that you had or something. Generally, 90% of people won't have a clue or even where it is, to be perfectly frank, unless they look at their iPhone and and see in their diary. So my whole thing was then trying to really create an amazing restaurant that that we could create. Yes, like a uh, a journey for them where... They're kind of hit with memorable moments all through their meal, from the time that they're met, from the time that they leave, in between little sort of, you know, stories and anecdotes, you know, about me and my career. And and then sort of we do these couple of pop-ups as well, which are fun things in the menu. So, yeah, so it's just about, you know, giving people a different angle to look at things and to really take them on a kind of a journey rather than just, Eating into a restaurant and having food, a nice glass of wine, talking to the wife, the girlfriend, or the lover, or whatever it
0: is,
1: (laughs) and then going home. So that's really kind of what we try to do. So
0: creative. So give us an example of something that's on the menu at the moment.
1: So story uh, is is our is our signature dish. It's called conquering the beech tree. So we all, I guess, at some point in our lives, have a test that we give ourselves, and sometimes you don't even know that you're doing it to yourself, but. I don't know, whether it's you're scared of spiders or whether it's heights or whether, you know, it's something that you want to eat or not eat or whatever. There's there's something that you strong-willed enough that you want to beat it. And we, as I said, when we grew up in Norfolk, we had this red copper beech tree at the bottom of our garden, and it was a a beautiful tree. Luckily, because they were building the M11 to the A11 that came from London to, to Norwich, and our beech tree was saved because it was literally on the edge of the of the motorway, on the embankment, so literally at the top. So it's kind of in a way even taller now because on the uh, embankment side, obviously there was you know another whatever eight meter drop. And me and my brother would you know would when we're slightly old enough would get sort of confident enough to start climbing this beech tree because you know it's quite a daunting thing to climb a huge tree. Absolutely. And anyway, as a, you know, as a, as a kid, you have some fear, but you don't have a lot of fear because you don't know what really can happen to you. Plus you don't have responsibilities of having kids or anything else, just, you know, but just, you know, that, that excitement of conquering something and it kind of resonates, you know, with also with being, you know, with being a chef in that you, you know, you have a excitement and you also somewhat when you're creating a new dish, you're kind of sort of questioning and sort of harboring some fears you know will people like this dish in terms of the flavor components you put together and taste the taste the way that it looks so you have doubts always but it's a question of like which way does it go to the doubt and the worry or to the excitement of fun and enjoyment of of conquering the beech tree which you know eventually I obviously did so there was it's that you know it's that euphoria moment of when when you've accomplished something and particularly as a child because it's such an exciting moment and when you've done it for the first time it's a wow moment and that's really what the story is related to of conquering a beech tree and you know creating a new dish
0: amazing i think that's it's a really generous way to write a menu because obviously food and memory is so intrinsically linked and to sort of share your own personal memories with the diner to give them that sort of sense of occasion i think it's very generous Let's talk about the fifth desert island dish, and that's the dish you eat the most often.
1: Oh, that's hard dish that I eat most often. I would say that dish that I I would eat mostly on the weekends because obviously I'm working here at Muse, so we kind of have you know staff food that I eat, and that's changing every day. But generally, it's a roast chicken. So yeah. good. Yeah. Do you have a good. special
0: way of doing it?
1: I do, but it's a chefy way. But I kind yes. of, but it's just basically you know with the roast chicken, or when you're cooking anything simple things to um to do is to a take the meat out the night before the, the fridge i then just literally put a little bit of olive oil and lots of mold and salt over it leave it out overnight and then i cook it around 120 130 degrees in the morning and the breasts obviously cook quicker than the legs so i only cook the bird for around 50 minutes 45 50 minutes let it rest for about 45 minutes turn the oven up to 220 degrees, take the legs off after resting for 45 minutes, put them in the tray that the chicken has already been in, so you've got all the nice juices and everything, and then cook them sort of around sort of 12, 15 minutes on each side of the leg. And then the last 10 minutes, the oven is on 220 degrees, the last 10 minutes I then put the crown, the breasts that are still on the bone, back in the oven, and then all the juices and then the legs that have been there, they're all getting nice and crispy and the, the juices are turned to fat. And then I just baste the top of the chicken in this sort of chicken fat and then leave it in there for 10 minutes. And then you have a moist breast of chicken. There's crispy skin, thin, delicious, and nicely cooked chicken legs.
0: Just like that. Mm. <laughs> Easy. You, yeah, you weren't, you weren't joking. That is the most chef roast chicken I've ever heard. It sounds absolutely incredible. Let's talk about Only a Pavement Away, which is the charity that you teamed up with last year. Yeah. How did you get involved in that?
1: So I got involved because of the uh lockdown and um I thought if I'm going to have enough time on my hands I should do something with uh you know with a charity and preferably something that is to do with hospitality. Yeah, we got in touch with Only a pavement away and they were very happy that we did because they were kind of a little bit sort of under the horizon of of other I would say, you know, celebrity endorsed sexy charities. Um you know, so they kind of were not really well known and you know and the charity helps homeless people back off uh back off the streets and and in, into work so we got in touch and uh and then we basically came up with some simple things that we could do to help them so we did the five minute challenge and a lot of people were doing as you saw in lockdown sort of challenges and things and raising money for different charities so the five minute challenge was basically we um you had to cook a dish in five minutes. You could use whatever ingredients you wanted to use, but then you had to donate five pounds and nominate five other people. And that was it. So very easy to do. And then I got lots of chefs involved to do this. And, you know, we raised, I think about 5,000 pounds just with donations of five pounds, which is quite a considerable amount yeah, of,
0: it's amazing.
1: of, uh, of meals. And then, yeah, only recently we then eventually got funding to, to make the cookbook. So we've done a uh, cookbook now called the only pavement away five minute challenge. Or five minute feast, whichever one it is. Where you've got all the um you've got fifty of I'd say my sort of favorite chef recipes. But the bonus as well in this cookbook, not only do you get obviously great chef recipes, they are quick and easy, and they are quick and easy because they're done in five minutes, but you have the um uh you have a QR code on the on the page that the recipe is on so you can actually watch the chef do his five minute challenge as well before you do yours. It's very snazzy. It's good.
0: It is really good. And yeah, I love I love anything that makes that shows that cooking doesn't have to be complicated. The fact that you can make something delicious in five minutes is amazing. Obviously, when the pandemic hit and lockdown happened, the hospitality sector was hit extraordinarily hard. And I think it's just an amazing initiative to be involved in so many so many people struggling in a way that we could just never have predicted
1: yeah no it was, it was very tough and i think you know those in hospitality suffered a lot you know we everyone lost a huge amount of workforce uh people either went back to europe or or just fell out of love with the with the industry because i think a lot of people had time to sort of really contemplate on what they wanted in their lives and having as we all did a lot of time on our hands which we've never ever had before and i said the same to my team i said guys you very fortunate and maybe not so fortunate that you, you know, that you have a time in your lives where to a degree time stands still and, and nothing is moving forward. You don't know what's going on. You don't know what the next page is. So the most important advice that I can say is just use it wisely. You know, take up a sport or read a book or get fit or, you know, do something you haven't done before because you're not going to get this ever again. And, you know, all my staff were put on furlough so we kept all our staff, so that was, you know, so that was most important to me as well.
0: Yeah. I know. It's just it's so now that we're almost coming out the other end, I guess, it just doesn't even feel real still looking no, back, it doesn't, does it? No, I mean it's a blur. Let's talk about the sixth Desert Island dish and that is your go to dinner party dish.
1: Go to dinner party dish. Probably I mean I like um shellfish a lot. And again, doing something quick and easy. So my sort of go to one is um is scallops, so in a shell, so in the half shell, just with um, butter, a little bit of olive oil. So you put them in, and then you bake them in the oven, Uh, quite a hot oven, like 200 degrees, just with some garlic, some thyme, a little bit of lemon zest and lemon juice, and then just bake them for about four or five minutes. Simple. Simple but delicious.
0: I don't think I've ever done baked scallops, but that sounds really good. Do you serve a pudding?
1: Pudding? Oh, yes, pudding. uh, I mean, generally, it has to be a French favourite. Uh, ta-ta-ta
0: oh
1: yeah Yeah. best yeah so good it's gotta be good yeah and I love the crispy cold and pastry as well when it hits the sugar yum
0: okay on Desert Island Dishes we've got a cookbook corner so I'd love to know what is your most treasured cookbook
1: Oh my Lord. I, I mean, my wife hates me for this because I have so many cookbooks. She just like sees an Amazon box.
0: <laughs> oh
1: my God.
0: What are you constantly buying? Another and cookbook.
1: Sent them. I, I can't, some. I've got loads I haven't read. I mean, some I haven't even unwrapped. <laughs> They're just there.
0: Just nice to have.
1: They're just there. I just look at them and think, shall I unwrap you or should I just leave you? Or I don't know. <laughs> to annoy
0: my wife. <laughs> well, no, but just,
1: should I just not touch you? Because I think, you know, there's so something beautiful about an unread book as well i know it's a bit weird but there is like you just look at it and you think wow you know just the amount of effort that has gone into this book you know sometimes you don't want to touch it and i've got like a couple of like really thick cookbooks and there's some sort of trilogies of them as well and i kind of like one of them is uh of um adria el bully i haven't even opened it yet I bought it like four years ago, five yeah, years ago.
0: I, I know what you mean. That's the kind of book that you do just kind of look
1: at. And just, you know, there's something magical about it, you know. How um, many
0: do you think you have in your collection?
1: Probably close to a thousand, I think, I would say. But yeah, I mean, out of, out of all of them, you know, there's some funny ones I have. I've got one that, that came out in uh, 95 or 96, and it was called um, Off the Menu, and there's only a few of them, you know, sort of made because it was pretty harrowing what was inside. Because it was basically a telltale of all London chefs. I was <gasps> yeah, really? I was interviewed. In, it, it was, it was, it was published in some far-flung eastern block sort of country back when you know you could kind of get away with doing some dodgy printing and. Did it to,
0: include recipes? No, 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 it was no, just, it was no recipes. Okay, no, okay. it was just interviewing
1: Capital. chefs. Yeah, it was pretty bad. I was quite vocal about saint chess. <gasps>
0: tom we need to see a copy of this i work. don't think you can find any i mean they're
1: they're long gone but apart from that i've got lots of old books as well that i really love collecting old books you know sort of julia charles and you know sort of big french gastronomic books as well and you know which are kind of cool because they're all old school sort of pictures and stuff you know they don't definitely don't see anymore so they're kind of fun as well
0: right we're on to the final seventh desert island dish and that is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island
1: Uh, so the last dish would be which I always do on holiday every summer is um, has to be at least a kilo of um, ribeye beef char grilled to perfection on a on a barbecue basically black and blue not quite blue but rare so completely like you're cooking this thing at like you know 400 degrees so it's completely caramelized pretty charred on the outside but then you rest it for a long time, finish it again on the barbecue, and then served with um, triple cut chips and bournes homemade oh, That's Oh
0: my goodness! That's sort of the kind of dish that you almost wish your holiday would go faster so you get yeah. to eat it.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's that's the killer dish. <laughs>
0: and would you have a final pudding?
1: It would be the tartar ta It would be the tartar. Yeah,
0: excellent choice, Tom. Thank you so much for letting us hear your desert island dish. Tom no at all. Thank you. So there we have it, another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that if you enjoyed today's episode, you can rate and review the podcast on iTunes and even subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And it really does make such a difference. It boosts the show in the charts and helps others to find it, which is great and means that I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. And you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at DesertIslandDishes.co. Thank you again to our sponsor, Cooks Matches, and I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.